We will be in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Let's pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master and lover of humankind. Illumine our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge. And open the eyes of our minds to the understanding of your gospel teachings. For you are the illumination of our souls and bodies. You, O Christ, our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The story is told of an old man who spent several hours a day in church. And his friends asked, what are you doing in church for several hours a day? And the old man says, I'm praying. Praying? You must have an awful lot to ask God about. Oh, no, I'm not asking God for anything. (laughs) Then what are you doing? I just sit and look at God and God looks at me. That is the pinnacle of prayer. We've been talking a lot about what we bring to prayer. But in this final message in our series, Becoming All Fire, if you guys have that graphic, you can put it up, by the way, get the sermon title up there and stuff. Um, In this final message, we're going to look at the pinnacle of prayer, where we're praying beyond words. This is not necessarily how you start your prayer time, but we want to end up here. The old man has the right perspective. I look at God and God looks at me. This comes back full circle to our first message. Why do we pray? We don't pray to ask God for things. That is part of prayer, but it is not the aim of prayer. The aim of prayer is communion with God, where God is coming into me and I am being put into God. This union, communion. That's the aim of prayer. That's why we pray. And God looking at us and us looking at him, this is part of the process. And when we commune with God in prayer, and when we do this on a regular basis, and this becomes the beat of our lives, then it is inevitable that we will be changed. We will be changed if we continually have a mutual indwelling with God. It is impossible for that not to happen. Prayer changes us. And so tonight, we're going to finish the series by looking at the pinnacle of prayer. And the pinnacle of prayer is transfiguration. So, Becoming All Fire is a part of a quote that comes from Abba Joseph. You've heard this too many times already, so I'll just summarize it. Abba Joseph had told another monk that when you pray, you can, if you pray truly and keep at prayer, you can become all fire, alluding to the burning bush in which the bush remains itself while it is ablaze, not with a fire that burns, consumes, and destroys, but with a fire that illuminates, purifies, cleanses, and energizes. That is what we become when we pray and pray and become prayer. We become the burning bush. And by the way, a bush that's burning is not just a bush. It made Moses, the master of all bushes, probably had every bush named in that wilderness, it made him Turn his head at yet another bush. (laughs) We're not just bushes. We are something more when we are aflame with the Spirit of God in our lives. Amen? Amen. Yes. Amen. Sometimes, you know, I miss that about Dr. Bravo. He would always throw that amen for us. So, Pastor Dan, it's your job. Just kidding. Um, Someone's job. All right. So, here's what we've looked at. Why we pray to commune with God. Second, when we pray, we pray at set times and we pray spontaneously between our set times. I love how Theophan, to remind you guys, Theophan had mentioned that if you only have set times of prayer, every time you enter prayer, first of all, that's a problem if you're entering prayer. Prayer shouldn't really be something we exit, but we're growing, okay? But if, if all we ever do is enter prayer at set times, then it will feel like a burden and like fatigue because we're always rebuilding. It's like every time you need warmth, you have to relight the fire by rubbing the twigs together. Why not just keep the fire burning? As was the case in the temple, the fires were never to go out. Spontaneous prayers throughout the day, we've called them arrow prayers, quick things fired up to God, keep the fire going. Third, we looked at what we pray. 
We pray first with God's words. We use his words. My words are not better than his words. So we pray the Lord's prayer. We pray the Psalms. We pray scripture. Then we pray our own words. We looked forth at how we pray posture-wise. There's an inner posture where my mind must be focused and my heart must be open and the two come together. That's when you feel really engaged with God. You, you, it, it literally, like, you forget your surroundings when the heart and mind are one. And that's our inner posture. Our outer posture, we talked about things like raising hands, kneeling, prostrations, and so forth. Uh, fourth, uh, actually fifth, this was last week, how we pray structure. We pray with a structure. Thanksgiving, confession, intercession. All, our prayers must include these three. The order is not as important as the fact that we are thanking God confessing before God. We would need a lot less counselors if we had more confession, by the way. Did you know, by the way, I'm getting ahead. We'll probably say lots of this in the next series, but counselors have replaced the concept of confession. People go to confess their problems to someone on a couch because they're non-judgmental. Well, that's the condemnation, one, to us who've become judgmental. But second, um, we trust doctors more than we trust pastors. What does that say about us? Um, okay, yeah, sorry. I went on a little tangent there. Thanksgiving, confession, intercession. We pray for others and ourselves. Tonight, the pinnacle of prayer. So, okay, ascending the pinnacle is really hard. Of course, mountain climbing is hard. And prayer is exceptionally and exceedingly hard. C.S. Lewis says this in his chapter on prayer in the screw tape letters. Um, the demons are talking. They say, it is high time for me to write to you fully on the painful subject of prayer. What do demons find painful? You communing with God. On the painful subject of prayer, whenever they, humans, are attending to the enemy, God, himself, whenever they are attending to the enemy himself, we are defeated. But, There are ways of preventing them from doing so. That, by the way, chapter four of uh, Screwtape Letters is worth your read. Um, Theophan, uh, my favorite outside of America teacher on prayer, Theophan has said that if there is no success in prayer, then there will be no success in anything. It is the root of everything. Okay, do you believe that? Then why, I'm glad you do, that one person. (laughs) Then why as a church, and I don't mean just us, I mean the church, in America particularly, why do we not live like that? I've been sharing shorter versions of these messages with the high school at Lake Red Christian School. Patrick gets the privilege and grace of hearing everything twice. Um, Just last week, a student came up to me and said, are we ever going to talk about anything else in chapel? I'm like, well, of course, at some point. But I think prayer is like what I'm wanting to share right now. Um, And he goes, "Uh, yeah, it's been really good and all, but when are you going to tell us something important for our lives? And I think there's a perception that prayer is for, like, pastors. What about us? What do we do? And I I mean, you know, I have a good relationship with them, so I messed with them, but I very much seriously said, and what do you think I'm doing? This is the most important thing for your life. Frankly, brothers and sisters, if our prayer life is messed up, we will have lots of other problems. And then if we have lots of other problems, we're going to be trying to address those problems. When really, if we pray, we can learn to be recollected and less fragmented and we will see fruit thank you there is nothing more important in our lives there's nothing more important in our lives than learning how to pray Um, but especially learning how to pray in a way that gets us to the pinnacle so let's look at the pinnacle mark chapter 9 verse 2 After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
In Luke's telling of the story, he says, led them up the mountain to pray. And Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew's telling also describes his face becoming radiant like the sun. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Prayer. This is communion. Moses, Elijah, Jesus. By the way, Moses and Elijah are both people who met uniquely with God in a unique place called Mount Sinai. They had direct prayer contact with God. Also, they are considered what we would call today prayer warriors. Moses interceded on Israel's behalf twice in such a way that apparently God changes his mind. At least it's the way the story makes it sound. Whether God changes his mind or not, it's another debate. But Moses prays in such a way to direct the course of things. And Elijah prays in James chapter 5, says that he uh, was, uh, he was, Powerful in prayer, he, he made the heavens shut up rain, and then he prayed, and the heavens brought down rain. These are, this is a picture, we have prayer happening. We are on the pinnacle. And Peter, verse 5, did what we all think we need to do in prayer, open our mouths. <laughs> Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, tents, of course, are the place, thinking of the tabernacle. You're going to set up worship centers. We got to do something here. Peter, wanting to be spiritual. Brothers and sisters, doing something is not always spiritual. And our culture is very active. And we, as a church, could probably learn to withdraw a little bit from activity in order to gaze upon the glory of God more often. Verse 6. Why did he say this? For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. A prostration would be proper. You see something? You see the glory of God? Get on your face. Because that says everything. You don't need to know what to say. And a cloud overshadowed them, just like on Mount Sinai. The cloud came on the top and that spoke to Moses. A cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them. But Jesus only. That is the pinnacle of prayer. When you see nothing but Jesus. The transfiguration that we're looking at here is the aim of the Christian life. It's the aim. It's not only beholding the glory of God like the disciples are doing, but it's becoming participants in the glory of God. That is the aim of the Christian life. Not to just behold, but to become participants in this glory. C.S. Lewis talks about this in the, in the weight of glory when he says, when there's beauty, we always want to consume it and become one with it. And of course, that's disordered in many ways, especially and most provocatively through lust. But in, the, in a Christian sense, this is what we get in communion with God. We, whoa, we not only <laughs> behold God's glory, but we get to become partakers of the divine nature as we prayed. Um, prayer, we need to understand, though, that prayer is not itself the pinnacle. Never confuse prayer as the aim of your life. It is super important, but prayer is the path to our aim. Prayer is the way to the pinnacle. Prayer is the way toward transfiguration. So look at prayer as a tool. It's a means to getting to Jesus and seeing and beholding his glory. That is the aim of prayer. 
Never settle for, I'm praying, I've attained. (laughs) This is why we never stop learning how to pray. This is hard work. This is hard mountain climbing. So what, okay, we're talking, we're looking at the transfiguration, and I remember, like, all my youth, I was always confused, like, this is really weird and kind of cool, but, like, what does it mean? What does it mean? What What is a transfiguration? What do we mean when we say Jesus is transfigured? Well, there's lots, and you can listen to last year's message on this. Um, We went into specifically into the glory of God in this aspect, but we're going to focus more on prayer here. Um, So you can you can listen more to last year's, but I'm going to touch on three meanings here about the transfiguration. And the first is that what we see in Jesus's transfiguration is we see the new Mount Sinai. There are hints all over the place. Uh, on the sixth day, it says after six days, Jesus brings them up. Moses was told to wait. He comes up a little bit of Mount Sinai. He's then told to wait six days while the glory of God is descending. Then on the sixth day, he's called up into the cloud. Well, there's no accident that after six days, Jesus takes them up the mountain and they are absorbed by a cloud. Um, at the bottom of Mount Sinai, there's failure. There's pagan worship going on. At the bottom of this mountain, there, we will see soon that there is all kinds of failure and confusion below. Um, Moses, of course, is there. And uh, Elijah is there. Both had moments of God on Mount Sinai. So these, among other things, um, are hints that we are dealing with a picture of Mount Sinai. And rather than that mountain being the meeting place with God, the communion place with God, as it was for Moses, Elijah, and Israel... And when God gave the plans for worship and the tabernacle and the temple to his people through Mount Sinai, now it is Christ. It is through Christ we see the glory and face of God. It is through Christ we receive worship. And it is through Christ that we commune with God. In other words, this is an upstage of Mount Sinai. The greatest mountain and moment in Israel's history is now relocated and greater than in Christ. Greater than Sinai in Christ. This is a climactic moment. So what Mount Sinai was then is what Christ is for us now. Second, the transfiguration is our restoration from the corruption of sin. It's our restoration from the corruption of sin. Prayer transfigures us, but sin disfigures us. The transfiguration of Christ is likely what Adam and Eve had, were, before they were disfigured and corrupted by their disobedience against God. Notice that when they sinned, it says they realized they were naked. This doesn't mean their clothes fell off and lost weight because apples are a good diet. And of course, it wasn't an apple anyways. We don't know what it was. I always love that. People tell me, students especially, like, oh, yeah, why, when does it happen? When they eat the apple? I'm like, show me that in the Bible. <laughs> they get all flustered. It's really funny. Um, but they, they realize that they're naked after they sin because they were clothed with the radiant light of God. That's one of the theories that are out there. Um, but now we don't have that. We've lost that likeness to God. And... This is a vision of what we get to have when the corruption of sin is cleansed. This is immortality. This is what, in Christ, the human nature is going to arrive at in communion with God. Because in chapter 9, verse 1, right before this, Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You're looking at, embodied in Jesus, the kingdom of God come in power. It's a preview of our resurrection bodies. It's a preview of the glory to come. It's a preview of the kingdom. So, our restoration from the corruption of sin. And then third, the transfiguration is our invitation to become all fire. This is what it looks like to become all fire. And what we mean by this is that prayer is not something we do. Prayer is something we become. Now, you can stay in that little first stage all your life. Prayer is something I do, prayer is something I do, prayer is something I do. It's an activity. 
Or we can get to a point when the doing of prayer is transformed into the becoming of prayer and the light of God is made radiant in us and through us. That's when we become all prayer. Uh, There is precedent for this. For example, Moses. Moses, after coming down from Mount Sinai, Exodus 34, verse 29, tells us this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses was becoming all prayer. He's 40 days and nights in communion with God will do that. But see, this is a picture of what prayer does. You will either be disfigured or transfigured. We're all on a trajectory. It depends on what we behold and who we worship. Prayer will transfigure us, but participating in sin will disfigure us. Um, and also, by the way, what happened to Moses, Paul uh, alludes to this in Second Colossians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. You could say transfigured. It's the same concept. From one degree of glory to another, this is the old man in our story. I look at God, I behold God, and he beholds me. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Notice he also said, with face unveiled. Moses, because he saw that people are freaking out about his face, veiled his face. Paul is alluding to this and saying, we too can experience such communion with God. So the transfiguration is our invitation to become all fire. What, is, what does it matter? Why should we reach the pinnacle? Why should it matter that we go from praying as an act to becoming prayer? Why should it matter that we are transfigured? Because transfiguration in our lives will bring healing and help to a hurting world. This will bring healing and help to a hurting world. Look at what happens when Jesus comes down the mountain with his disciples, with the three, James, Peter, and, Peter, James, and John. In verse 14, when they came to the disciples beneath the mountain, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. I do wonder when it says that they were greatly amazed if there was some remnants of a glowing face like Moses, because there was something, vis- there was a visible reaction about him. They were greatly amazed and ran up to him. And they asked, and Jesus asked them in verse 16, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered Jesus, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. Let's modernize this a little bit in our context. I asked your people, the church, to help me. (laughs) But they were not able. And Jesus answered them. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And it is often cast him into the fire and into water, all to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. 
Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe! Help my unbelief! And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now there's the gospel in miniature. He's dead. He's raised. So will we. Hallelujah. And when he had entered the house, in verse 28, his disciples asked him privately, insert, because they're embarrassed, (laughs) asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Or if you're reading the New King James, you also have and fasting without going into boring stuff. Uh, In short, some of our old manuscripts say prayer and fasting. Some just say prayer. Your translators choose one or the other manuscripts. That's why. But prayer is the common translation that they both have in common. Uh, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. A church without prayer is a church without power. A church without prayer is a church without power. But here's what we do. We live, verse 14. When Jesus comes down, there's arguments. We side in arguments below the mountain rather than reside in prayer atop it. We get very distracted and way too invested in the arguments that are happening here in the valley. And we all want to know what side everybody's on. And boy, was the whole, has the whole COVID journey been fun with that, hasn't it? In fact, there is something called now the COVID shuffle in church discussions. In other words, it means that because of COVID, many, many, many people, many people left their churches to other churches because they disagreed with their political position. What, in other words, COVID has done is it's shown us we as Christians are more interested in the argument below the mountain than we are with prayer on the top of the mountain. There was nothing about the gospel or theology or doctrine about why people left their churches in the surveys. It was all political. Now, I don't need to address the elephant in the room that we used to be twice as big before COVID. And I know that I don't talk about presidents and so forth, all right? Like, I understand that. I have a bigger heart. Now, that, please talk about that in your free time. It's not that it's unimportant, but it's not this important. This place, my role, my calling is to give to you guys the gospel and the word of God and to grow us up for the kingdom of God. We belong to the kingdom of God, not to the kingdom of America, Now, I will be faithful as an American, but I will not ever put America above the kingdom of God. And now you know that. You know that, not because I said it, but because we practice that. Um, And unfortunately, it makes some people mad and irritated. (laughs) But uh, that's the COVID shuffle. This is not in my notes, by the way, so... Um, I just want to elaborate, though, on this. It's very real that we are more interested in the arguments that are happening down here than we are in the prayer up here. This is way more. It's reflected in, in students and in adults who say, yeah, six weeks on prayer has been nice. But like, when can we get back to scripture <laughs> or when can we get back to other like I need help with this? Um, y- yes, I know that. But this is the pinnacle of life, and this is what heals a hurt and a hurt and wounded world. Is when we become all prayer, then we, like Jesus, can come down and things will happen. Because he told the disciples, You failed, because this kind cannot come out except by prayer. A church without prayer is a church without power. 
Um, this is also why I believe we see a decline of verse 15 happening in our culture. You see people immediately, they, they see Jesus and they're amazed and they run up to him. We don't see culture amazed by Jesus anymore or running up to him. We don't run to Jesus first. We have so many other solutions first. In fact, the church is now becoming the butt of jokes and hostilities right around the corner. I mean, the way we are treated, yes, yes, this is the way of empires. They tend to hate Christ because he is a king. But I cannot say we're innocent in this because we have stopped being a powerful church because we've stopped being people of prayer. Arguments cannot help a hurting world. Verse 17 showed us that. Someone from the crowd answered Jesus, Teacher, I brought my son. He has a mute spirit. But your disciples were not able to. The disciples were so invested in the arguments, they had no power over the spiritual realm. You know why, by the way, you have no power over the spiritual realm when you are invested in the arguments of culture? Because the arguments of culture are demonic. You are participating in the distraction that the devil wants the world in. The devil is about chaos and fragmentation. In fact, diabolical means to separate. And when we enter into that, we are not being transfigured. We are being disfigured. We are not participating in the glory of God. And then, of course, Jesus said, only prayer can drive this out. What if, what if we changed our perspective? What if we stopped treating prayer as peripheral and made prayer central? Consider this. We usually look at ourselves as, as people who live life and sometimes pray. But what if we looked at ourselves as people who pray and sometimes live life? What if, in other words... Life was not interrupted by prayer, but prayer was interrupted by life. See, this, we, we think about what we need to do and our ambitions and our lives, and then we say, oh, but it's time to pray, or oh, something happened, we should pray for that. Moments of prayer interrupt what we generally call our path of life. But what if prayer was what we became, constantly in communion with God, and then life interrupted a phone call? Oh, it's time to go to work. Or, oh, it's time to do the dishes. Or, oh, it's time to eat. But that, those are seen as interruptions. What if our mind was flipped on these things? I'm not saying it would dramatically alter and make you less productive. I think it'd make you more productive. But it's a mindset that prayer is the default and everything else is vying for time on our prayer life. That would concur with Theophan saying prayer is the most important thing. Without it, nothing can be fruitful, for it is the root of everything. What if? Well, then, how do we get to this pinnacle? How do we ascend the mountain? How do we get there? Uh, I want to give you guys, close you guys with three ways to do this. Um, the first two quick, and the last one a little longer. First, how do we reach the pinnacle of prayer? Get a guide. You're going to climb the Himalayan mountains. You don't do this alone. You get a guide. You get somebody who's been on the path and knows the path. They know the pitfalls. They know where your foot shouldn't go and where your foot should go. They know the areas that are good for vistas and the areas where this slope might be coming down soon. So please walk by this area quietly. They know where you need ropes. They know, know, they know when you need to take breaks. So you have your energy for the next stage. You need a guide. Prayer is no different. And we mostly strive to have individual prayer lives, which is fine because prayer is very personal. But we never have assistance or we don't talk about our prayer lives. Actually, um, did you know that it was common in, um, at least in one part of the church way back in the early days, it was common for the greeting among saints to be, how is your prayer? Not, how are you? How is your prayer? Because you know what we do. How are you? Oh, well, work's going good. Remember, there we are. We're people living life in which prayer interrupts. <laughs> they saw we're praying and life interrupts. How is your prayer? Um, 
I frankly desperately want to copy that. I think that would be a, that would be really challenging. It'd be so uncomfortable for people though. Oh my gosh. Who are you? And what do you mean my prayer? And then I feel guilty and then they hide from me. Ooh, that's how I keep people away from me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, get a guide though. Man, brothers um, and sisters, um, I have two stories of this within our congregation and just like flames my heart. Uh, One person uh, sent me um, a text this week and said, here's what I'm doing in prayer. I'm praying this and this. Thoughts. I'm like, that's amazing. They are looking for guidance and they're sharing like, this is how I pray. Um, Another person uh, had had a connection with someone in this fellowship that really baffled me. And I thought, well, did you know them before coming to church here? And like, no. Well, how did you connect? And their answer was, I like the way they pray. This person was drawn to the way they prayed and wanted to get to know them. Get a guide, a pastor or someone who you like the way they pray and encourage one another. Because, man, you might have blind spots in your prayer or someone that's a little bit ahead of you may know why you're stuck and why you're wanting to quit. Get a guide. Second, stick with it. Now, I know that these last few weeks have given given us a lot to chew on. And some things we've never thought about, some things we want to incorporate, some things that are new and we're not sure about. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Nothing I say is exactly how you have to do that. And I think I've shown you a lot of liberty and flexibility. But when you try something, stick with it For at least a month. Because it needs to become part of... You need to be drawn into the prayer. Not say, I tried it for two days and it's not me. Wait, wait. First of all, Jesus never told us to follow him by saying, well, what's you and do you? Okay, first, like that's important to realize. And then second, um, stick with it because you don't know how you might grow beyond yourself into something new. Stick with it. My rule of thumb is that in my prayer routines... Um, I don't change a thing for at least 30 days. And every 30 days whereabouts, I will say, um, is this psalm that I pray still necessary? Or is there another one? Or, or I will revisit. Um, I, I once started with confession. I told you guys this last week. I'm going to start with confession. And I switched to Thanksgiving first. That happened in reflection, right? But I, I stuck with things for long periods before I decided to just change it up. Don't keep changing things up. There is a proverb. I don't remember who said it, but... Um, some Christians said, the shrub that is continually uprooted cannot, oh no, a shrub that's continually transplanted cannot let down roots. So don't keep changing it up. Stick with it for at least 30 days, then consider. Stick with it. You don't climb a mountain in two steps. You don't do that. If you do, you're not on a mountain, you're on a pebble. We want to ascend the pinnacle of prayer. Stick with it. Keep going. Uh, so that's first. Get, get a guide. Second was stick with it. And now finally, third, learn to listen. For this is the pinnacle. Peter, the voice from the cloud, rather kindly said, shut up. This is my son. This is what he really said. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now, Mark did let us think that because Mark said Peter was blabbling because he did not know what to say. Listen to him. When we listen to Jesus, we reach the pinnacle to where verse 8 says, we see Jesus only. That's the pinnacle of prayer. There is a time when your words can only get you so far up the mountain. The pinnacle is a place where you pray beyond words. Not necessarily without words, because you don't want to necessarily get into transcendental meditation and new age stuff. Okay, I'm not going to go down that road. But it's a place beyond words. The need for silence. Let's start with that. The need for silence. Soren Kierkegaard, that 19th century theologian and philosopher from... What, if you're Danish, where are you from? Denmark, thank you. I was going to say the, from Dane, but I knew that wasn't right. Uh, the Danish theologian philosopher said, if I were a doctor and was asked my advice, I would say, create silence. 
How much more so in the 21st century? Prayerful silence is not emptiness. Now that's like what new age tactics are all about, emptying yourself. This is not about emptiness. It's about fullness. This is not about shutting the mouth. It's about opening the heart. This is not about absence. It's about presence. The classic Psalm 46 verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. This isn't absence, it's presence. When I'm still, I know God. I'm not trying to unknow everything. I'm trying to know more truly God. Claude Debussy, the 19th century French composer, beautiful pianist guy. Um, the guy's not beautiful, though. <laughs> he is attributed to saying that music is the space between the notes. Music's the space between the notes. And friends, I suggest to you that the pinnacle, transfiguration, is the space between our wordy prayers. So when you pray, pray, but allow space between prayers. Transfiguration occurs in the silence that we permit in prayer. C.S. Lewis, again, I'm quoting from the same chapter in the screw tape letters, said this. Um, of course, they're the de- his demonic characters are saying this. If a Christian ever consciously directs his prayers to God as he truly is, then our situation is, for the moment, desperate. The demons are in panic. Once all his thoughts and images have been flung aside, then it is that the incalculable may occur. When the thoughts and images that we cram into our minds about God are flung aside and all we see is Jesus, that's when the incalculable can occur. Translation, that's when transfiguration of our heart and soul and lives occurs. So what we do is we dismiss every thought until only Jesus remains. Now, that's hard to do. How do you listen to Jesus? Well, stop thinking. Stop being active like Peter. I got to do this. I got to say that. Put that aside. But that's so much easier said than done because um, I am flooded with a barrage of distracting thoughts like Peter's. I'm no better at this than you. My brain is like your brain. Well, some of you have a much better brain, but we are alike. And Elijah, James says, I was a man with a like nature. We learn, though, we learn how to stop and silence Peter in our minds. Because um, our minds are determined. They're starved for activity. Have you notice that? You shut it off for a second, and it doesn't actually shut off. It just says, well, you're going to dismiss me. I will kick into automatic thinking. <laughs> and then all these things you didn't know were in your head start coming at you. You suddenly remember things you'd never remembered, like, oh, my registration's due. You know this is true because every week when we have silence before confessing Psalm 51, some of you aren't focusing on God because the silence grabbed you and you're like, woo, hyperdrive. Um, Our brains demand activity, so it's really hard to just stop thinking. In fact, the elimination of all thought is not preferable anyways. C.S. Lewis, one more time in that wonderful chapter in the Screwtape Letters, Uh, says this, the demons actually want you to be thoughtless. (laughs) They say this, encourage your Christian to produce in himself a vague devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. One of their poets, Coleridge, has recorded that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knees, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. This 
is exactly the sort of prayer we want. And since it bears a superficial resemblance to the prayer of silence as practiced by those who are very far advanced in the enemy's service, clever and lazy patients can be taken in by it for quite a long time. What, am, what are we saying? We're saying listen to Jesus. This is the pinnacle. But when we say listen to Jesus, it can be easy for us to think, okay, I'm going to stop thinking. And in all your efforts to stop thinking, you get into this, what one author called the holy dozy. (laughs) Or as we saw in Screwtape, these vague notions of spirituality. I have a sense of supplication. Brothers, I know, and sisters, I know the value of listening to Jesus and unguided. I tried this. So I know from experience that this is a real pitfall. The silence without intention can easily become, I'm praying. And you're just a passive being. Here's the solution. This will be completely new for a lot of us, but it's an important solution and I want to commend you try it. Use the frequent repetition of an arrow prayer. Use the frequent repetition of an arrow prayer. Because listening to Jesus is not relaxation. You're not stretched out on a sofa, just kind of letting your thoughts disappear. I'm now in the presence. You're in the presence of something, all right. It's not relaxation. It is attention. It is the intense focusing of our attention. So by using an arrow prayer, you're permitting a focused attention, but without something you have to think about that would be distracting. Now, if you're not familiar with the term arrow prayer, this was from an earlier message in the series. So let me remind you, an arrow prayer are those short one-liners you can fire up to God, and they become memorizable so that you don't have to think about them all the time. For example, from the Psalms, you have, oh Lord, make haste to help me. Or you have, I am yours, save me. Or you have, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Or have mercy upon me according to your great compassion. Or you have the tax collector's prayer. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or you have blind Bartimaeus' prayer. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. These are arrow prayers. These are helpful because what they do is they give our minds something to focus on, but not just something, dog, cat, meow. Um, They give us scripture. They give us God to put and focus our minds on so that we don't have to then engage in what's the next prayer? What am I going to say? What am I feeling? We just... Keep the arrow prayers there, honed in. And that enables us to listen to Jesus. Now, I would commend, there's so many arrow prayers you can use, but I would commend to you a prayer that has been in use since at least the 5th century, known as the Jesus prayer, because of its use of the powerful name of Jesus and its cry for mercy. And it just goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because here we invoke the name of Christ and we keep him in our mind while we listen to Christ. There is power in the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and tongue confess at the name. Paul did not even say, when they see the vision of glory and terror, at the name, there's the announcement, Jesus is Lord, every knee goes down and tongue confesses. Using, the, I would commend this one to you. You can use whatever you want. Um, by the way, this has been ancient and been in use for, by Christians for thousands of years. You might go, why have I never heard of it then? Uh, because we live in the Western Hemisphere and the Western Hemisphere became Catholic and the Catholic Church used Hail Mary instead. And so then when the Protestant church started, of course, we discarded the Hail Mary and we had nothing. So the Jesus prayer was the prayer in use until these uh, superstitious medieval Hail Mary stuff came into being. Um, that's why we've lost it or we don't know about it. But this is a common prayer of concentrating our hearts, desires on Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, 
have mercy on me, a sinner. Listen. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Listen. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Can you not already feel the calming presence of Christ in you? St. Theophan said, in order to listen to God in prayer, we must blind the mind with one thought, an arrow prayer. But then he adds, well, actually, the thought of the one only. The one only. Blinding our minds with Jesus. Now, I would recommend uh, choosing one arrow prayer for listening to God in prayer. um, Because what happens is we end up sharpening with repetition. This one arrow. Until it becomes sharp enough to pierce the hardness of your heart. And when it pierces the hardness of your heart, the prayer has entered your heart. It's no longer just your mind. It's your heart. And what then happens is your heart, once pierced, will actually self-activate your arrow prayer at moments you were unaware. You will find it happening through the day. Some report to waking up with the prayer already being the first thought in their minds. That's the reason for honing in on one arrow prayer and sitting before your Lord, able to listen. Because by closing our minds around the words of the arrow prayer, we're opening our hearts to the voice beyond words. That's what we're doing. This is also how we can pray without ceasing. It stays with us. It starts praying in our hearts. We pray without ceasing. And this is how we can become transfigured. This is how we become all fire. May God be made manifest in you and in me. Lord, teach me to pray. Pray you yourself in me.